Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 18th of October, and uh, today we, last week, we promised you that we would have a more in-depth conversation with somebody uh, who actually is informed and knowledgeable about these, about what is happening in Israel. And you know, uh, Tammy and I spent some time thinking about who the right voices might be. We also will be doing more of these shows to highlight different types of perspectives on this because I do think this will be the news story. A I mean, news story almost seems like a callous way to say it. I think this yeah. will be the story of the next few months, maybe even the next few years here. Um, and so today we have uh, Amjad Araki. He is a editor at 972 Magazine, and he's a policy analyst at the think tank Al Shabaka. Um, a few uh, one of his colleagues, I think, we'll put this in the show notes. You might have seen his name is Tarek Bakoni. He did a interview with our with me and Tammy's colleague at the New Yorker, Isaac Schotner, um, that you know at least on social media I saw was passed around quite a bit, um, not just from people on the left, but also you know just broadly as being really clarifying. And I think that um, our interview with Amshad, I think, is you know accomplished a lot of the similar things. Like it's just a way to understand things that I think is, are very difficult to understand from a Western perspective, taking this in, right? Yeah. Um, there is a. And I think like thinking in real time, you know, like he was very right. generous, just like we, he, he doesn't know all the answers, but he's trying and we're all trying to process right. things. Right. And that a lot of stuff is still speculative, but that the speculation comes from an understanding of a context rather than exactly. a sort of projection of an interpersonal dynamic, which I think is a lot of how the West is uh, processing this. And, you know, and it's in a way that I don't really, like it's very difficult for me to stand in, any, in too much judgment of this, but it does seem like the, because, you know, the atrocities that have taken place are, uh just emotionally evocative in a way that that feels, you know, certainly not new, but, you know, it certainly is powerful. And so uh, we, uh, we, we wanted to continue this and we'll just, con you know, we will continue to continue this if that makes sense, right? Like this will not yes. be the only interview we do, yeah. but it is the first interview that we have done. All right, so on to the interview. Um, we're very excited today to be with Amjadi Rocky, who came through our friend Adam. He is a senior editor at 972 Magazine, which has circulated a lot, I think, among our community um, in recent days. And he's also a policy analyst at the think tank Al Shabaka. Amjad is a Palestinian citizen of Israel, and we'll discuss what exactly that means. Um, he's currently based in London. And Amjad, I know it's a really difficult time, so we're super, super grateful to have you with us today. Thank you. No, thank you guys for having me in this time. So um, Jay and I thought we could start just with a sort of a little bit of personal background about you, means we sort of know your writing well and um, your journalistic projects. But um, I guess one, one place to start is, what does it mean to be a Palestinian citizen of Israel? I think, you know, people who may not be as familiar with the geopolitics of the region 
could maybe be surprised that not everybody in Israel is is Jewish. Um, yeah. So, so what does that identity mean? And and also, how did you find yourself in London? Yeah, we're uh, we're a peculiar community. Um, I'm sure uh, <laughs> many people who followed uh, Israel Palestine will know about like the War of 1948 and what's regarded on the, on the Palestinian side as the Nakba or the catastrophe. And uh, most people will know that about. 750,000 Palestinians were uh, expelled or fled during that war. Uh, but what also happened was that basically as the, uh, as the armistice lines were being created between Israel and the surrounding Arab states, you still had about 150,000 uh, Palestinians still on the Israeli side of those uh, uh, of the ceasefire lines. Uh, and then the Israeli state basically decided to, um, I mean, for kind of a whole range of complex reasons, decided to grant those Palestinians Israeli citizenship. So we have, I mean, today we have like a blue passport, blue ID card, uh, and basically, in theory, at least, you know, all these, uh, or at least on paper, we're supposed to have all these equal rights uh, accorded to Israelis, uh, Jewish Israelis, excuse me. Um, The short story is that that's certainly not the case. Um, Basically, between uh, the years of 1948-49, all the way up to 1966, Israel actually imposed a military rule, basically the same sort of system uh, that we see in the occupied West Bank and in Gaza before the kind of shifting of the, towards the blockade, um, whereas these military systems are operated against citizens inside the state. So my own grandfather, uh, who was born inside Palestine during the British mandate, he lived through military rule all the way up to uh, 2014. Um, so he was subjected to that kind of regime. And it was after 1966 that military rule was lifted. And then just a few months later, that uh, that system became projected onto uh, the occupied territories of the West Bank and Gaza. And we've had kind of steady, steadily increased rights, like in terms of where we were a couple of decades ago. Um, and that was very much also a dialectic between the community pushing back against the state and also just, you know, other kind of factors in terms of class and you know uh, all these uh, all these aspects, um, which leads me to where I am today. Of uh, you know, in theory, you know, ha- having the citizenship and being able to fly out and having quite a few more privileges than other Palestinians. But uh, I'm sure we will go into this more. But just having an entire legal and political infrastructure that still makes me inherently uh, an unequal uh, an unequal citizen. Yeah. And do you still have family and friends in Palestine then? Can you talk about, yeah, where they are and are folks in Gaza right now? How are they doing? Yeah, it's kind of by cosmic chance that I'm actually here in London. I arrived just a few weeks ago. Uh, my mm. partner uh, is starting a PhD and I'm carrying on my work with 972 from here. Um, you know, none of us could have expected what's just happened over the past yeah. week yeah. or so. Um, and we were based in Haifa for quite a number of years. Um, and though I've lived up, you know, in and out of Israel, Palestine, that's been my home, especially for the past, uh, uh, 10 plus years. Um, and yeah, we still have our uh, members of our immediate family are back there or, you know, our friends, our community. Um, and also just in terms of my professional work, you know, I'm working with, uh, uh, you know, sort of radical left Israeli activists who are kind of shocked by what happened mm-hmm. in Southern Israel, but I'm also working with Palestinians in Gaza who are experiencing really the most horrendous things you can imagine. And of course, in the West Bank as well, whereby even though it's kind of going under the radar a little bit, but there's a lot of things happening yeah. there. So you really feel everything between the river and the sea, just experiencing a moment that we're still really grappling with, but that everyone knows is just so much more different from anything we've experienced in the past couple of years, uh, especially for the younger generation, you know, people in their 30s and 20s. 
Um, and we've seen flickers of this, but uh, this is quite uncharted territory, I have to say. You wrote this uh, article in the London Review of Books that we'll link to in our show notes, but I found it quite interesting because, uh, you know, just sort of pivoting to talk about what's happening here. Um, you know, the analysis that you gave was that, uh, that, and I want to read from the piece a bit, which is, you said, a number of analysts are describing Hamas's assault as, quote, a game changer. And then you go on to say that since the end of the second infatata, and especially under Netanyahu, Israeli society has tried to insulate itself from the military occupation it has imposed for more than half a century, maintaining a bubble that was only occasionally punctured by rocket barrages or shooting in southern and central Israeli cities. Like, and then you say that that bubble has now irreparably burst. I was interested in what you what you meant by that. Um, I know that you explained it in the piece, but I think it's like uh, if you can just tell us what that means. Like, what what has burst? Yeah, um, you know, in many ways we're still in this kind of fog of war. Um, and so, you know, I mean, that piece and anything else I might say is still kind of set in this shroud of a lot of, right. you know, yeah. shock and non-clarity in a way. Um, but we can sort of understand this in two ways. So the kind of most immediate spark of this was obviously Hamas's assault on southern Israel. And there are two dimensions to this. Um, one is the kind of strategic military physical aspect of Hamas, you know, this Islamist movement, an armed group breaking out of uh, the Gaza Strip, which has been under kind of, um, let's say, a heightened siege for the past 16 years, but has always experienced some form of closure, you know, even before uh, you know, even before 2007. Uh, so there's that very element of the group after this years of having this kind of understanding with Israel about this containment of just kind of focusing its uh, political efforts mostly on in Gaza. Over the past few years, Hamas has really tried to step out of that uh, um, engagement. And this is really militarily like one of their, one of those big moments. They targeted the Eretz, the Eretz crossing, which is like the sole civilian checkpoint for Palestinians to go in and out if they have permits, uh, you know, whether it's for work, if you need to have like a medical permit. And all these, of course, are very hard to get if you're a Palestinian there and also restrictions on goods, et cetera. So the very fact that Hamas targeted that and also targeted other spots uh, along the Gaza fence, uh, and we call their fence not a border, um, mm-hmm. uh, for, again, reasons we can get into more. Um, so there is that kind of military strategic aspect, just breaking out of that engagement. But then there's this other dimension, which really cannot be, um, I guess, overstated, uh, but it is what is is bluntly were bloody massacres and atrocities in a lot of these southern Israeli communities in the south. Um, you know, we're still trying to grasp the full scope of exactly what happened, but you know, a lot of these militants went in, and regardless of what they thought they were initially there to do or what they had planned, what ended up happening was that masses of civilians were killed. Uh, I mean, as of now, I think the 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 casualty on the Israeli side is about 1,300, and we still need to see the full breakup. But there's no question that hundreds of Israeli civilians in those places were really massacred in the most brutal in the most brutal way, um, with like a lot of a lot of horrific stories coming out of it. So it's it's important to see these two elements, um, not because one cancels out the other, but because it, um, it it also reflects on what's a bit of a parallel two parallel universes of what Palestinians are seeing or seeing in this moment and what Israelis were seeing in this moment. Okay. Um, and it's not to equate either, but it's just, it's, you know, it's how to understand that. 
And where I come to in terms of this idea of the psychological bubble, um, I mean, what I try to mention in the piece is that, especially since the Second Intifada, which was a very kind of a very violent uprising, especially compared to the first one, the first, what's regarded as the first Intifada in the start in '87, Israeli society has really just tried to push the occupation out of sight and out of mind. So even though you know you have Israelis serving in the military, and obviously all this money goes towards this expenditure, and you know. It, 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 but there's this, even though they're physically present in these places, even when they don't know that they're on occupied territory and all this is functioning against Palestinians with military incursions and wars on Gaza, but just psychologically, Jewish Israelis have really tried to erase it from their mind and try to focus internally on things like the economy and basically coming around to this consensus that our best security option is to actually maintain this regime of what I'm going to bluntly call apartheid. Um, and which, you know, also may put certain people at discomfort, but which has all the backing you can find to explain why it's the case. Um, and even just pal- how Palestinian citizens of Israel also fit into that kind of large architecture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've had this bubble being punctured quite a bit over the years. You know, you have, you've had wars in Gaza, very brutal ones. You have moments where militants go into Israeli towns and cities. You have, like... Uh, tensions in Jerusalem. So there are those punctured moments, but it's again going back to just like, let's put them back out of our, you know, out of our memory in many respects. This attack just completely breaks that. Um, it says that you can't just ignore Gaza. Uh, and it's done it in the most horrifying ways through these massacres primarily. Um, but I think it's, I think it's hard for Israelis to now conceive that they can kind of maintain the regime and maintain that psychological distance in the same way. Um, and in theory, that should, you know, open up a bit of self-reflection of what that regime is and the cruelty of it and what that does. But we're actually kind of seeing quite the polar opposite, that the automatic uh, and overwhelming response is about revenge and is about not just not just about maintaining the regime, but if we're going to change it, we're going to make it even more brutal. Um, this is what we're seeing at the, at this moment. Um, but this is, the, this is the kind of violent response that we're seeing to that burst bubble. So a lot of, uh, you know, many, many countries engage in this type of forgetting, right? Or, or just ways to sort of obscure something that is happening, right? Like that you were saying, the sort of project of having Israelis not think about this at all, right? And that that is what has been burst in many ways. Like, how, how do you, how does the Israeli government, how does, you know, whether the media, however, how do they how do they sort of accomplish this? How do they how did they create this sort of bubble of forgetting? It's always a lot of complex factors, but um, I do think that the second intifada was quite a formative moment for Jewish Israeli society. Um, again, without necessarily going into like you know judgments and the context of stuff, but it's just like for most Israelis, I think they in their mind and most of their narratives. The, the old Zionist left's idea that you can sort of create some sort of agreement with the Palestinians, uh, create a two-state solution, and you know, there are a million holes to kind of puncture through that. But in that, in, in that Jewish-Israeli narrative, that the thesis was somehow completely disproven because of the violent reactions of that second intifada from 2000 up until 2004 or 2005. Um, and so you kind of inherently have this general shift in these conversations, you know, not just you know, created by Israeli leaders, but, you know, as a society as a whole, just kind of having these debates and starting to shift more and more to the right. And you had especially people like Ariel Sharon, who was a prime minister at the time and has been one of the, 
you know, even the ghost of him is still is being very present right now in this military response. Um, who are just trying to lead this uh, this campaign? Of like, how do you restructure apartheid? And that the best solution is a no solution. You know, don't give the Palestinians a state. We need to keep them under uh, under our boots. And this is the best way for us to ensure our security. And then you have people like Benjamin Netanyahu, who since two thousand nine has really been cultivating this and empowering right-wing forces in Israeli society who feel like they're being proven correct, that this right, this Zionist right approach is better than your Zionist left approach. Um, Palestinians have a very different take on all this. But, uh, but this is what basically allowed the society to also shift more and more down that spectrum to the point that you now have what is without question like the most far-right governing coalition, uh, almost unanimously, that's, you know, I mean, here it's important to say, like, it's not just the, the politicians are telling this to the society. The society votes in these politicians. The society itself is going through, you know, these these changes and transformations that enable these leaders to come about. In Israeli media right now, we're hearing really genocidal calls, like from and you know, like from broadcast to the newspapers. Like, this is a it's really pervades every level of society. It's not just Smotrich or Bengvir or Netanyahu. Um, and that's really where where it's at, and it's hard for Israeli society internally to hear anything outside of that. And nowadays, you know, what used to be the Zionist left is really minuscule, both in the Knesset and in the public discourse. Um, so yeah, this is really, you know, this is a kind of like homogenizing situation in many respects, such that any political debates are only within what is regarded as the Israeli right. That's where your arguments are. Yeah, I think that's drawing the those comparisons also to nine eleven, right? That's why you see some of the, so much of this that sort of consolidation of that. Um, I just had a had a quick follow up to to that in terms of, I guess, just the meaning of of violence in the situation. We were reading some of your past pieces in nine seven two, and um, I think in January you wrote a piece about sort of digging into. Um, Sorry, there's a train outside. Um, this cycle of violence notion, you know, and how it's not really a parody situation. This is an asymmetrical situation. And um, and in in the start of that that piece, you you write that you know targeting militants yet harming countless civilians is a method that has proved has been proven to exacerbate violence rather than contain violence. And I'm I'm curious, and you know, you don't have to commit to any position because I feel like everyone's working through their view of things, but. How are you understanding what Hamas did? And I mean, you know, you just explained your view about the civilian atrocities in Israel. But, you know, I I think other people are kind of looking at this like this is a situation where there are no tools left, where violence is sort of the only answer. They grappled with that. And some people are, are, you know, maybe not praising the civilian casualties, but sort of saying, well, it's good that they did something, you know? And so I, I wonder if you could just help us kind of think through how you're thinking through the meaning of violence in this situation. Yeah, I'm really trying to be careful with like how I'm laying out the skeleton of all this because I mean, I know in the public discourse, just anything can be used and manipulated, but, but, but let's put it this way, Hamas, I mean, before I even get to the bigger question of like context of violence and stuff, like Hamas wouldn't have done this kind of, this kind of scale and level of attack if it didn't think it had any other option in its own mind, you know, it could be, I mean, my take is this is completely unjustified regardless of, I mean, but in the, you know, that kind of level that they did, but like, um, it's an indication that the siege is not sustainable, 
that somehow, and especially the Israelis, and maybe Hamas also thought that there was some kind of uh, what my colleague Tariq Bakaouni describes as an equilibrium, that somehow if you just keep 2 million plus people on this on the minimum, that they're not going to necessarily get angrier, that everything will just kind of be static. And that's also how much of the approach around Israeli apartheid functions, is that, if you, that somehow doing all this keeps everything static. Uh, but there's a direct link between how Hamas used to, you know, has been trying to wage armed struggle, uh, violent attacks against Israelis, and where it has really metastasized to this kind of level of massacres. Um, again, outside of the military scope of like the crossings or the fence or even military targets, etc. Um, and it is because it is feeling these pressures. Um, I mentioned some of this in my LRB piece, like internally, the Palestinians in Gaza they understand the siege. They understand the Israeli state wants to try to get rid of them. Uh, but they were still applying pressure on Hamas, for example, to just whatever resources they have for things like electricity and water or other basic needs, do more. You know, it's natural for them to do that as that of the Hamas government. Uh, the siege itself is just like really um, breaking Palestinian society there. Yani. And also, there, it's not just about what's happening in the Strip, the, the Palestinians there are also seeing what's happening in the West Bank with uh, more and more provocations at the holy sites in Jerusalem, uh, massive settlement expansion, you know, settler pogroms against Palestinian communities. Like Palestinians there are watching all this. They're feeling this attack, these, this expedited violence, especially in the past few months with this far-right government. And on top of all this are these Arab states that are, you know, now coming up with Saudi, Saudi Arabia, trying to create this normalization agreement. So the Palestinians are really feeling that any uh, leverage that they may have had is really running away fast. It's being it's being pulled out from under them, uh, including the regional aspect. And that and that I think for Hamas, you know, you know, where what my what uh, Bakoni described as equilibrium could no longer work. It's not enough just to have the occasional rocket rounds. That something had to give, and something really. Really shocking, and it's, this is the kind of military aspect, like shock and awe. Just like do something that really tries to paralyze, even just psychologically, your enemy. Um, again, this is not at all to justify what happened in the you know in yes. the southern communities, but it's try to understand this calculus in the same way that we'll understand even military uh, uh, tacticians. Um, but yeah, but there's serious questions to be asked because now we're seeing the massive consequence of this, whereby we're not just talking about massive bombardment, but the potential of a complete, and I say this very bluntly, ethnic cleansing of Palestinians to the Sinai Desert, which the Israeli officials have been very explicit about even before they arrived in office. So, you know, this context of violence is important in terms of, uh, you know, regardless of the moral questions, you also have to understand that even after this round of war finishes, the violence is the constant that the regime itself is a form of violence. It's not just some theoretical Mm -hmm. thing. Like the, Mechanics of apartheid are still operating and are still functioning, even when you don't have rockets or missiles or attacks in, uh, on Israeli towns. Uh, and I think that numbness that we, a lot of people have had and the international community has had about what that means uh, and just ignoring it and going silent the moment that the high violence turns off is what has, what has led us to this moment, mm-hmm. uh, whereby for these political actors, the only thing to do is to create hot you know, fiery, murderous violence. You know, something you mentioned your colleague, Tarek Bakoni, and I, uh, you know, one of our colleagues at The New Yorker interviewed him and, you know, I think it was quite an illuminating interview, um, one that I certainly appreciated. And one thing that he mentioned that you also mentioned in your 
LRB piece is that uh, perhaps the perhaps Hamas was surprised by how far they got, right? That that um, that they might not have expected to have, uh, you know, that 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 they would have expected that this would have been crushed before they got to any of these places. And that again, this is not to, you know, surprise being somewhat totally neutral term here. Like, um, what is the like what 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 is what does that mean? Like what like or where does that sort of assessment come from? Because I was I was really interested when I read that, um, which was you know because it makes it almost seem even more uh, in terms of what the backlash and what the response has been from Israel. Like it it almost feels like you know like just a provocation at that point. Almost you know, and maybe some people would say even to like invite this type of response, right? That if there was no hope at all of any type of military uh incursion or 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 success then you know like then then what are we talking about here so can you yeah can you just explain a little bit what why this was surprising yeah i mean we're still speculating obviously and we're still trying to and i think a lot more things will kind of come to light in the coming weeks months maybe years both on the hamas side and the israeli side uh, but yeah it seems quite yeah th- th- there just seem to be this element that Hamas was quite surprised how far they were able to get. Uh, and even when you hear, um, like I've been working with reporters in southern Israel who like jumped there the moment they heard that uh, the assault was happening. And even when you hear like Israeli citizens in those communities, they're saying like the army didn't show up for ages. There were no security forces around. Like where were they? Uh, I mean, this is you know, also like the timing it was like on a Saturday morning. It's Shabbat and all these yeah. elements. And, uh, and it was a Jewish holiday, like Simchat Torah. Yeah. So there's all these elements. But, you know, this this kind of uh, assault takes months, if not years to organize. Um, uh, But, and, you know, beyond the questions of military or tactical preparedness, which, you know, I'm no expert on, so I can't speak to, but it, it it touches on something, which also like, which Tariq has been talking about, whereby the Israelis got very comfortable with the status quo. Um, And even as the far right has all these ambitions for what they want to do, whether it's in the West Bank or Gaza, but they just, it became so normalized that they didn't expect Hamas to do anything differently beyond the usual dancing. And and they were kidding themselves, you know, like the military, the political establishment just thought that they could keep going at this for ages. And and Tariq, I've been talking about this with Tariq, and he says, like, that's, it's quite evident, uh, you know, just in the way that they've been dealing with Gaza, even just in the past few months and few years. And so that routine um, just sunk in too much. Uh, and that's part of that psychological shock. And it's not only in the, in the military and political establishments, but exactly from Israeli society and these, you know, and these communities surrounding Gaza, whereby, you know, it's very different if you're from like being in Tel Aviv or in the north. And they're they're kind of aware of Gaza, but also not thinking about it all the time. I mean, the average Israeli citizen, let's say, down there in the south, uh, you just blot it out. Um, and it's the same, to be honest, also in the West Bank, whereby there's a massive concrete wall, you know, that's also blocking out Palestinian towns and ones that are really neighboring my own hometown in Tira, um, next to like Kalkili and Tulkarim and all these places. But you just be, psychologically, you just begin to ignore them. They mm-hmm. become these little, you know, it's like trees in the landscape. Um, I think that's deep down, I mean, without getting too much psychoanalysis, but that's just, I think there's something about that which really permeates uh the um the unpreparedness and 
just the lack of sight of that something like this could happen and the way that it has really, like I said, metastasized into something that's completely horrendous. I, I was hoping you could clarify something for us because it's like, it's been something that I've been a bit confused about, which is that, you know, there's this well-publicized post and I, I'm talking about here and what the mood is of the citizens in, in, in Israel, right. Or the people in Israel, which is, you know, there's this well-circulated poll that the Jerusalem post came out that said that 80% of people uh, felt that the Netanyahu government was to blame. Right. And that it, I think a lot of leftists or, you know, I guess progressives even pass that around to show, hey, the, the, this is not, you know, even within Israel, um, you know, they understand the, the situation that might have created these atrocities. Right. Um, but I don't know. I guess I was somewhat skeptical of that because I didn't really know what that poll meant. And I, I suppose that like Tammy, I assume that, you know, when something like this happens, that, there is a hardening, right? And it's one that I think that in some ways can be understandable if you're talking about an average citizen where you hear about these atrocities and then, um, you know, like there needs to be some response, right? Now that seemed to be a much more uh, typical or at least predictable response to it. And it seems like, you know, just from something that you had said before that now the conversations are just within the right, right? Like that's what, that's a scope of political argument. Um, yeah, like where, where is it right now? Yeah, I guess, I mean, to, to even zoom out, you know, for the past, I mean, since the beginning of the year, you know, it, all of Israel from the top to the bottom has been enthralled in this kind of, um, in this massive uh, fight debate over what's being regarded as like the judicial overhaul or judicial coup that's being pushed by the far right government. And a lot of other, you know, pieces and policies to this, but this is really just taking the mind of his, most Jewish Israelis, like since the beginning of the year, uh, even within the Israeli right of just like, is this the right thing? Is it not? And this kind of polarization, uh, even just even like mass acts of, you know, of protests every single week of civil disobedience uh, and even people who would be like, you know, there's some right wingers who even agreed with the idea of overhauling the judiciary, but are being like, this is not worth it right now. Like this is tearing the country apart. It's hurting our economy. It's hurting our social cohesions. And, you know, all these different spectrums of views, whichever way you look at it. So there's already been this kind of. Uh, kind of grumbling discontent, even from those who might back elements of this right wing, uh, of this right wing government. So that context needs to be kind of also sort of uh, put on. Um, and also people, some people just also getting tired of Netanyahu for different reasons. Uh, he's also got, still got his corruption uh, trials going on, which obviously everyone's going to be ignoring right now in this context. But so there are these debates that are happening is really Jewish society. And those past, these past ones have been quite vibrant but even those are still operating in a bubble. Um, so this is actually where the position of Palestinian citizens of Israel is quite handy. I mean, I can speak more for about those under occupation, but just for this community inside, we make up like one fifth of the state's citizenry. And we've been watching you know, this massive fight over the judicial overhaul. And most Palestinian citizens are like, what are you talking about? Like, what are you? <laughs> <laughs> and because, you know, there, there are these two narratives that are being fought out and I can get into it a bit more, but just like, uh, the far right is kind of saying one thing. The opposition, and I would say not, it's not a center-left opposition because it's actually quite a mix of political ideas. Um, but it's happening in this Jewish-Israeli discourse, which doesn't actually understand how the court, how the Supreme Court or the Israeli legal system has actually often been in sync with the state's worst policies, especially when it comes to Palestinians. This is not to say that the judicial coup is not a danger. It's a huge danger. 
But if you ask Palestinians, it's an issue of like the degree and the speed more so than the end goal, the purpose. And I can give a gazillion examples as to why, but I think that disconnect as well, even as you are having these grumblings of people now saying like Netanyahu needs to go or that this government has failed us because they're obsessed with this kind of, you know, extremist ideology, which is just endangering everybody and, you know, mm-hmm. created this uh, refusenik, um, you know, movement you know, in the military, people refusing the draft or uh, like reservists refusing to show up, you know, for duty, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, like on the bigger picture, actually, that's, st- it's still in itself, it's just happening in a, it, that, yeah, like I said, it's just, it's just disconnected from bigger factors uh, that Israeli society doesn't want to get into. Mm-hmm. I was curious if we we could talk a little bit about the the kind of international picture. You know, our listeners, I would say, are kind of mostly in the United States, but also in Asia, Canada, Australia. Um, And, you know, from I guess from the the U.S. perspective, I mean, one thing I was thinking about in the news today and it's Monday is um, we had seen Israel sort of prepare the ground invasion a couple of days ago. Um, and now it, it seems sort of halted or, you know, it's at some we don't really understand exactly what's going on. But and and Biden, who was making what I consider reprehensible comments against the Palestinians as people and was just, you know, completely in support of Israel, is now sort of cautioning against the spread of a wider war. And, you know, some of that is, I think, because of Hamas activity from Lebanon, et cetera. Um, but but how. Do you think the the sort of international aspect of, of Hamas and of those sort of, I mean, we mentioned the Saudi pact and all of this kind of playing into this. And, and maybe we could talk a little bit about sort of the role in the, the United States in supporting Israel right now, too. Yeah. I mean, to begin with, like even like Hamas itself is actually a transnational movement. Uh, everyone, and this is also one of the things that Tariq uh, Bakoni talks about a lot, whereby everyone just kept mm-hmm. having this misunderstanding that Hamas was somehow reserved to Gaza, but it's not. It has yeah. a presence in the West Bank, despite like you know repression both from Fatah, uh, which governs the Palestinian Authority, and also the Israelis. But its uh, political bureau and its leadership is also in exile. You know, they moved used to be like in Syria, and now they're in the Gulf, and you know, it, right. so they they have these presences and they have these linkages with groups. Um, yeah, with other Arab states, with other kind of uh, Islamist actors, you know, these linkages that, you know, which make it a part of this greater architecture. And I know that all the focus is always about Iran, 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 but that's, you know, it's, there, there, there are other intricacies that are there in that respect. So there is definitely a regional dimension to this. Uh, but like you said, I think there's this, um, there is this attempt to try to link this to this questions of like, um, or I guess let's say, I mean, the, the fact that Iran is becoming so dominant in the conversation is, again, just a, this indication that the most of these actors, especially in the West and the Israelis, certainly, really don't want to deal with the Palestinian question as the mm. Palestinian question. It has to be about what will this mean vis-a-vis Hezbollah? It has to be what does this mean vis-a-vis uh, Tehran? Uh, and international actors are seeing this. It's why we're even seeing like uh, China stepping in, uh, astoundingly enough, which usually doesn't get involved in Israel-Palestine stuff, uh, and has actually been making a lot of arrangements and deals with the Israelis with things like ports and railways and other economic programs. And now stepping in, being like, "You need to you need to put an end to this war. This is unacceptable." I mean, you know, that, hearing that from China is also sometimes a bit of a question mark. But like, these are, but this is. You know, th- these are these kind of um, th- these geopolitics that are being played. And in the meanwhile, you have two million people in Gaza who, you know, aren't just being like I said, I was mentioning this earlier, but like it's not just about bombardment. One of the big geopolitical questions now is that 
basically the Israelis and the Americans appear to be trying to get Egypt, which you know has the other border with Gaza, to basically open up and have masses of Palestinians, tens or hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, to go into the Sinai. And like right. I said, Israeli politicians have been quite clear about this. This is not a new plan. They tried this even back soon after the Nakba of 48 and so on and so, on and so forth. And it's just this idea that just move them somewhere else. And it's like the logic is that, you know, you don't bring them back into what's today Israel, which is actually where most Palestinians from Gaza are originally from, you know, displaced during during the 48 right. war. It's take them to right. the Sinai Desert, drop them there. And now everyone's trying to sort of like persuade or buy out Egypt to make that happen. Because the Israelis see no, I mean, the way the far right is presenting it is that there's no solution to Gaza, to the Gaza problem, as they refer to it, other than reoccupying it directly, you know, by putting the military on the ground there, by reestablishing settlements, and by squeezing out as many Palestinians as possible. And if that's the case, and they somehow find a way to convince Egypt of that, then the Palestinians are yet again kind of the victims of these larger, you know, of this larger regional architecture to which, you know, that they've always kind of had the worst of that, of that end. You know, we've always been played around, not just by Israel and the United States, but Arab states as well. And these regional actors, they think we're very disposable. Um, and that's quite terrifying. Um, and yeah, yeah. And you see that even now, and it's still early to tell, and we're still trying to navigate it, but I think the, the Egypt question and whether, what they do with us, I think is a huge has a huge role to play in this. Right. It might not even be in Egypt's choice. It might be you end up having masses of Palestinians. I mean, God forbid, but Palestine, masses of Palestinians just like overrunning the border just to try to escape to safety because of the Israeli onslaught. Yeah, like it's a, there's a reason why everyone is like everyone there is saying it's not it's even more than ethnic cleansing. We have potential genocide here uh, mm-hmm. under such under siege where we have no power, no food, no water. They're really right. trying to choke us to death. Um, yeah, this is really, really alarming, and no actor is really seeking out the safety and security and even just the basic rights of the Palestinians in this uh, in this entire scenario. Um, you know, I, this would all be speculation, but you know, one thing I've I've also noticed some of the shift in rhetoric from world leaders, including Joe Biden or whoever, um, in the past couple of days, and you know, it, to put it as crudely as possible, what it might seem to be is that there was some allowance of revenge, right, because of the atrocities that took place and that now the international community is saying, okay, that's, you know, that's enough, right? Um, And if that is true, right, um, how receptive is Israel going to be to that international pressure? Because I would say that, like, from, um, like, this Sort of, I don't know if it's delayed or whatever, this ground invasion, right? The one that we thought was going to happen three or four days ago that has not yet happened, um, that it feels like there is some sort of negotiation happening, right? And that there is an amassing of strength, right? I think 300,000 reservists were put on uh, call that, that, that there is a sort of war games element to this being like, we could, you know, like we absolutely could. And that that perhaps there is some sort of negotiation going on there. But, you know, if that is not true, right, and if this is going to be, you know, what you called pure ethnic cleansing, then like what, how receptive is, yeah, just how receptive would Israel be to international pressure to not do this at this point? Um, the answer tilts more towards they won't be susceptible. Um, and... And I guess it's for two reasons. One is that 
I mean, Israel has a lot of complex international relations, not just towards the West, but like towards Russia and China and like all these other actors that it's thinking about, including the Arab states that are like, as I was mentioning, are, it has these normalization deals on the line as well. Um, but, you know, the, the only real force that can really stop or even really turn the Israelis around are, are the Americans. Uh, but this, you know, for all the reasons that we know, this is highly unlikely. You know, even in the worst of times, you know, the United States, you know, publicly keeps going along that same line. The Europeans are too scared to even step out of it. Mm-hmm. Like the Europeans are basically going all in, even inside their own countries to suppress pro-Palestinian protests, right. practically, basically banning yeah. them. So everyone's kind of falling into line. So the likelihood of this is quite weak. And again, God forbid, but just like the idea that you have to cross 10,000 Palestinian deaths before the Americans say, maybe the Israelis need to pause. Like that's, that's maybe where I see a bit of a breakthrough. And that's a terrifying thought. They have to right. allow, you know, mass slaughter to occur in order for a geopolitical decision to be made like that way. Uh, but the other element is also the domestic. Israelis, you know, you know, with, you know they've been seeing what happened and they're really calling out for revenge. Um, and even those who are trying to prioritize the communities in the South, whatever, it's like the, the impression I'm getting at the moment is that most are really done with the Palestinians and especially done with Gaza. Like, and again, you're hearing that from the public, you're hearing that from the media, you're hearing that from the politicians. It's just like, we need something, you know, we need to get these people out. We need to give them the biggest battering they've ever experienced, um, which it has all the flaws in the world and all the moral and, you know, you know, all the moral problems and horrendousness that that, that brings, but it's just, um, and that domestic kind of uh, atmosphere, which you're even feeling, like I said, like even on university campuses and that even like university administrations and the bar association are all turning into like, it's like, it really feels totalitarian in the, in the way that they're really going after anyone who speaks out against what might you know? What the Israeli army is about to do in Gaza, um, and that domestic pressure is going to push the Israelis to go all the way ahead. I mean, I wrote about this in the LRB as well. For these far right leaders in power, like this, really is a historic opportunity. They see this as the best justification to really go to really go as uh, to go down as much of their wish list as possible vis-a-vis Gaza. And we're even seeing this in the West Bank with increased violence and attacks mm-hmm. and settler kind of pogroms against Palestinians to try to kick them out. But it's going to be the same in Gaza. Um, so I think, so those two factors, I think, will kind of are pointing towards a very, very bad direction whereby, like I said, Palestinians don't have any more leverage. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll find out more in the coming days and weeks. But at the moment, it's not looking, it's not looking positive. Mm-hmm. One one of the things that um, you know, both I think you and and Tarek Bakoni mentioned was that maybe one of the things that Hamas wanted to do was shatter this idea of invincibility or this this uh, sense of invincibility, right? That um, that something like this was possible, and that they wanted it to serve as a signal. Like who who are they trying to who are they trying to uh, send that signal too, right? Like, were they hoping that other Arab states might join in? Like, what was what was the idea? Because, you know, that's one thing I've, you know, having read about this quite a bit and following it, it's one thing I still struggle with, which is just that um, you knew that this, it seems like one should know that this response was going to be the response always, right? Unless you were hoping on some sort of miraculous event that, that, um, 
that was going to change things. And so like, what, what was there some hope that if they could show that, that Israeli defense was not invincible, that, that there, there might be a larger conflict that might erupt from all of this? I mean, like every kind of military action, there's always multiple audiences. Um, you know, the, the Palestinians themselves are also one of those audiences. Um, you know, one of the things that Hamas is very mindful of is trying to present itself as a national movement, not a Gaza government. Um, and so this is why even one of the primary um, justifications that Hamas was giving when the, on the day of the attack was actually about Al-Aqsa, like the, one of the holy sites uh, in Jerusalem, which is like both a religious and a national kind of rallying cry in many respects. Um, like it's telling that they were focusing on that and not necessarily not just a blockade, let's say, and that was really front and center for even weeks and months. Because uh, there were also demonstrations along the fence uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and so, so they're trying to tell other Palestinians, "We are your national leadership, not Fatah, which is uh, basically a subcontractor to the Israeli occupation that uh, you know, is, whose entire survival is dependent upon maintaining your, you know, your oppression, and also to a lot of these like local militia groups in places like Janine and Nablus, which have been targeted over the past year and a half, two years, especially by the Israeli military, but." Because they're unaffiliated with any major political faction, Hamas is also sending them a signal that if you're going to wage military struggle, you know, follow our cue, or that we are, we are maybe the compass to try to direct that a little bit more. So there's multiple like local internal, let's say, um, avenues of that. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and then one exactly is that is that regional. Um, the fact that so the Saudi Arabia Israel deal it's been really talked up, especially in the past couple of weeks and months, to make it. And I think it's still inevitable, but uh, and I don't know how much really? this is, you know, yeah. And there's different like kind of speculations how much it factored in. But, you know, if Saudi Arabia, you know, says yes to normalization, that's really the crown jewel of uh, Israel's regional integration vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, the regimes yeah. and the governments, which are very different from what most of the, you know, the public and people in the Arab states actually believe vis-a-vis -vis Palestine. Um, so, yeah, it's sending a message to the Arab states being like, you, like, we can't let you get away with that either. It's like, uh, we're going to call your bluff. Um, if you guys think you could do this, but, you know, behind our, you know, by bypassing us, that's, that's not going to work, especially when it comes mm -hmm. to things like Jerusalem, etc. Um, and yeah, and this is where exactly where that invincibility or that breaking that myth of invincibility lies, whereby Israel is not as strong as you think. This system, this apartheid system is not as stable as you think. Um, that we can still press where it hurts and we can still make your lives difficult. And the fact that you have skirmishes up in, you know, up with the, in the border with Lebanon, whether it's Hezbollah or other Hamas or Palestinian factions, the fact that there are these meetings that are happening even in the Gulf now with Hamas, I think there was the Iranian foreign minister a few days ago, like they are sending these signals to everybody that you might think of us as this little actor in this tiny little strip, but no, we are connected to this larger geopolitical mm -hmm. equation. Uh, we're not contained. Um, and yeah, this is, yeah, it's, it's always those multiple fronts. Um, and we're still going to see where, you know, what that breaking of that myth of invincibility fully leads to. And the Israelis are desperate to try to, uh, you know, have that massive show of force and wrath to restore that image to Israelis and right. also restore that image to its other, you know, its other enemy states, uh, in the region. And so, yeah, it's always, it's always these multiple audiences on both sides. I'm, I'm wondering if we, um, you could do a little like rehearsing for us or give your own view of sort of a larger vision question, which is like, I remember, um, during the second intifada being in, 
in lot in school and you know being part of campus conversations where there were lots of different visions of well what is it that Palestinian liberation translates to right is it like if we if we had to if we could just dream for a second like is it reclaiming that land is it uh, having a two-state solution that's durable is it having a one state that is integrated and multicultural multicultural and not like an ethno-nationalist state on you know um and I yeah, I mean, of course, we have to sort of balance some, I guess, practicalities and achievability with this sort of vision question. But um, I imagine that what leftists in the United States want is probably different than what people who are Palestinian citizens of Israel are thinking. And I'm just curious, kind of like what in your, you know, with with 972 Meg and the other things you're involved in, what are those conversations? Like, what is the sort of like North Star of liberation movements and activism right now? I'm really glad you asked this question um, because I think we need to rewrite the premises of the debate. So for a very long time, um, and this, I mean, I'm speaking this for, for everybody who ever covers Israel-Palestine, for a long time, the question of Palestinian liberation was tied to statehood. And I mean, this goes beyond just Israel-Palestine. I think in a lot of countries, the idea of freedom and independence and self-determination okay. is entirely wrapped up in the modern nation state, you know, quote unquote. And, you know, I've, I've tried to think about this a lot. And the best that I can sort of try to explain the divergence is that for the Israelis, Jewish self-determination and freedom, etc., can only be wrapped up in the concept of a Jewish state. For Palestinians, their fight was never about statehood. Maybe, you know, there are, there are political actors who push for it, but at its mm -hmm. core, the Palestinians would tell you, make 50 states for all we care. Are our rights to our land as individuals, as collectives, as families rooted in a space and specific neighborhoods and properties and farmlands and hilltop and the hilltops you know, where we belong and have the freedom to move, etc., make your state arrangements however you like. And I think that inherent divergence um, and also the way the international community has also tried to enforce a narrative that statehood was our path to salvation needs to be shattered. Um, and the thing is, like, this was actually being, you know, this was how the original Palestinian liberation movement operated, um, you know, both, in, you know, before 1948 and also the PLO. The PLO advocated a single state, not because, not for the sake of the state, but for the sake of saying, like, everybody's going to live here. Uh, and this is, the, and we're going to, it's like a secular state, but it's the idea that everyone's rights get fulfilled, the refugees can return. And then we have some arrangement, you know, between Jews and Palestinians uh, within that, you know, and then of course it devolved and sort of took all these you know, more violent turns and these different manifestations that occurred, but it's just like, there have been the discussions all along and that divergence has always exist existed in the Israeli discourse and much of how Zion political Zionism now operates. It cannot fathom Jewish existence in Palestine outside of a Jewish state only. And I think as long as that is where much of the international discourse is pinned to, um, then we're kind of trapped. And people are also fundamentally misunderstanding what Palestinians are fighting for. Like people even now are saying like, oh, this is a blow to the two-state solution. The Palestinians cannot care less. Uh, the two-state solution was always about entrapping Palestinians into like a fifth of their homeland. Um, or even like back in the 1947 UN partition plan, it was like, you don't deserve half of your land. We're giving it to these other people. And the Palestinian Arabs are saying, no, like that's... We're not going to be the price for your colonial idea. You know, it's uh, it doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. um, this is the inherent injustice that 
needs to be addressed. It's why even if you lifted the occupation, even if you gave Palestinian citizens full and equal rights, half of the Palestinian population are exiled refugees, not allowed to return, and are being told by the Israelis and by the international community that you do not deserve the same rights as other refugees. You don't deserve to go back home. You need to give up everything because... We go into this. We believe in this idea of a Jewish state where Jews get to have superior rights compared to you. As long as that's where our conversation is at, then we have a huge problem. And this is also part of that normalization of even apartheid in the mind. It's not just about the mm-hmm. practice and reality, but the fact that we, in most of our conversations, inherently give superior rights to Jewish Israelis in the future and where and how they belong vis-a-vis Palestinians. That we're the ones still told to pay the price. The price for Israelis of having full liberation and really giving full freedom for Palestinians in the same way that Israelis have now between the river and the sea is that Jews have to, Jewish Israelis have to knock down their privilege by a, quite a few notches. And, and a lot of people think that that's unacceptable, but that's inherently what breaking down privilege is about. That's inherently what breaking down racial structures is about. And these are the same conversations that are happening in the United States, that happen in South Africa, happen in a gazillion countries. It's not unique to us. But precisely mm-hmm. because it's not unique, we need to be using the same language and the same structures as much as possible to understand how to rectify that. But somehow Israel-Palestine gets this exemption to be an ethno-nationalist state where one people gets more rights than the other. And for Palestinians, that's unacceptable. So... And there are and really these conversations happening, and there's a lot of different camps and ideologies, and you know, uh, and especially I think Palestinians in, in the diaspora were able to have a bit more space to imagine this more so than those under occupation. Palestinian citizens in Israel also, you know, they have this relative space to kind of actually think about what does that look, you know, what does the future look like because they know Jewish Israelis up front, you know, and so they can envision a different kind of reality, uh, constitutions even of like um, about how this can look and that this is workable. Um, but yeah, but that space needs to be carved out better, and the uh, and that apartheid of the mind needs to be needs to be rectified. That's helpful. Thank you. Um, there's a lot of protests and actions going on uh, across the world. I think we've seen video of that. You know, whether in American cities or even in Paris, or where France banned these protests, we see sort of repression of protesters in Germany. Uh, like, can you just tell me? Like, how do you, what is your response to seeing all of that, right? This sort of outpouring of people. Now, I don't think that any of us need to be naive here and say that this is like a show of power in any sort of way, right? Because uh, the people who are doing this don't have much power. They're just sort of exercising their right to show up and have their, be heard. Um, yeah, like, what, what has it been like for you to see this everywhere? It's a... Uh... I'm still trying to navigate that myself because, you know, I, I mean, I'm speaking for myself, really. I, it used to be much more um, invigorating to see that kind of solidarity. And even like here in London, where I am now, like they, people have been saying like this, it was one of the largest protests I've ever seen uh, in London, I mean, let alone on Palestine. And so it's, it is quite extraordinary. And you're seeing this kind of massive shift. Um, but I guess over the years, I've also just become so much more uh, uh, cynical um, and just understanding there are certain political pathologies which don't respond to that public pressure. I mean, the war on terror, mm-hmm. war in Iraq, 9-11, and the masses that came out for things like that, like, are, and, I'm, and you know, we were all caught up in that from, you know, from 
from the United States, Israel, Palestine, down to Kenya, where I used to, also used to live. Like it was so global, and we knew that there was such mass opposition. Um, but was it enough to push back? You know, and it's not to say that we shouldn't. You know, I mean, I don't want to go down that route, but um, I still can't figure out the political calculate. Like I can't, I can't work out the political equation yet of how do you tilt that balance. And even when we try to think of like other examples like South Africa and the movement against apartheid, um, and even that, you know, the, the way we were told that story of the resistance to it was also hyper simplified and it was actually a very ugly struggle. There was military aspects. There was, you know, what is regarded today as like, you know, quote unquote terrorist aspects. There was massive civil disobedience. It wasn't just boycott sanctions, etc. And so, um, yeah. so their narratives are also being told, um, you know, which, which also kind of try to simplify our struggle. And this is also why a lot of Palestinians are kind of fed up also of being trying to be diplomatic in the way that they're talking about this and why they're even trying to contextualize why such violent acts might happen, regardless of whether they think it was justified or, you know, obviously like immoral. But it's like, are you really asking Palestinians to have the cleanest anti-colonial struggle in the history of the world because you forgot how un- other anti-colonial struggles had to operate? Um, you know, and it's more than just Algeria, South Africa. There's a whole spectrum in between, you know, all the way stretching to Asia and Latin America, and and the, and the post-colonial and the imperial phases that happened afterwards. It's like, you know, we and a lot of Palestinians really are just tired of that. It's like, you know, you expect us to be angels against this political regime. That's uh, um, that shouldn't be the case. Um, and just modern history doesn't work like that. So yeah, I'm just um, I, I really can't figure it out. But and in the end, you know, the salvation or even just the attempt to resist comes back down to the Palestinians. How can we reorganize ourselves? And it's hard for a society that's been so brutalized, so torn apart, has had to as sadly like also kind of internalize some of those divisions to the point that you know it's hard for us to overcome that either on the leadership level or the social level and geographic fragmentation all deliberate under this kind of colonial structure. Um, but if we also can't get our house in order, as it were, it's not to pin the blame on us, but it's just like in the end, we understand from conflicts and regimes bigger than ours that if you if our own people can't get it together, there's no one going to help us. Like no one is going to help us. You can't push international actors. Uh, we are our first line of defense, um, as, uh, as difficult as it is to say. All right. Well, I don't, Tammy, do you have anything else? I mean, uh, thank you for, uh, that was great. Thank you for so coming much. on and sort of helping us understand and our listeners understand it's, uh, you know, one thing I think that with our listenership, at least something that has been obviously at the center of people's minds. And I do think that, uh, clarification is really important and that, you know, I don't know. I just appreciate the, the time that you gave today. Thank you. I'm John. Thank you guys for having me. Um, Really appreciate it, especially in in the heat of these moments.